0: Have you guys heard of the Peter Principle? It is a uh, organizational management principle, which says that in any organization, um, what tends to happen is people rise to, quote, their level of incompetence. In other words, right, this is actually a thing. You're good at what you do, right? And so you, you get promoted, and then you're good at what you do, and you get promoted again, until eventually within that organization, whatever the organization it is, you wind up in a position where you or which at which you are no longer good. I.e., you were a good salesman, right? And so you got promoted up the sales chain, but then eventually you wind up promoted to manager. You were good at sales, you stink at management. And so, right, you rise up the hierarchy until you get to the level of your incompetence. What's interesting is if you play this out, since the person is now incompetent in their job, they're no longer going to qualify for any additional promotions, and thus the organization, over time, winds up having every job occupied by an employee who is an incompetent to carry out its duties. As it turns out, there is a lot of research that shows this principle to be true. You all didn't need any research to prove it to you. This is how I occupy this job. (laughs) If you're at home, there was just an amen from the audience. And now you're stuck with my incompetence on display every single Sunday. Now, being a guy with a business background before I became a pastor, I, I knew this principle but I didn't know it was named after the guy who discovered it. He wrote a book called "The Peter Principle." His name was Lawrence Peter. I thought and this is what happens when you spend lots of times in church and lots of time in business I thought, you know, things tend to merge on you uh, I thought it was named after Peter Jesus' disciple. Till this week, that's what I thought. I thought someone in the business world had, had just used Peter as the example of this principle, and they named the principle after him. Think about it, right? Here's Peter. He's a, he's a disciple who went from fisherman to, to lead disciple, the rock on which Jesus said he was going to build his church, right? Peter, great fisherman, you'd imagine. A, a good disciple, bad at walking on water, terrible at not denying Jesus on the night of his arrest, Maybe it was Jesus that was the first to discover the Peter Principle. Or is it possible that Jesus, right, when you understand who he really is and what he's up to, that for Jesus, the real Jesus of Nazareth, the Peter Principle actually has an entirely different meaning? One I want to show you this morning. So we're going to go back to the story. We've been building brick by brick on this over the last bunch of weeks, following Jesus from cradle to grave, and it, it, again, I, I encourage you, I, if this is making sense to you, if you have a friend that would, that would you know, maybe is interested in, in, in understanding who the real Jesus is, I encourage you to invite him. There are 96,000 people that would live within one town of our church that don't have any kind of personal relationship for Je- with Jesus. What a, what a unique series to invite him, them to. So previously on Cradle to Grave, if we could put up the big map, I guess, We've, we started our, our journey down here at number four. That was where um, all four of the gospel writers start, start their understanding of who Jesus is. And all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all started with you have to first understand who John the Baptist was. And, and down there in southern Israel, on the banks of the Jordan that flow into the Dead Sea, that is where John the Baptist is bringing tens of thousands of people. to, to be baptized for the remission of sins, calling them away from Jerusalem, out of the temples, saying that the religious system as they know it is now corrupt. There is a new king and a new kingdom coming, and you need to be prepared for it. And then we follow Jesus out into the desert of his temptation, learning that the temptations Jesus faced are very much the same temptations that you and I face, and they're often grounded and rooted in the question of if. If you are the Son of God, if you are a child of God. Then last week, we followed Jesus back home, back north up to Nazareth, with a message that nearly got Jesus killed. Could we put that that back up a second? Jesus, after John the Baptist is arrested, after the temptations, he goes back north up To the, the western side of the Sea of Galilee there, you see the word Galilee. Nazareth is just set off there, just a little south and just a little west. Jesus goes into the synagogue in his hometown, and he delivers to them a message that makes them chase him out of the town. The message was that the coming kingdom was not necessarily for them. It would always be good news for both the practically and the spiritually blind, deaf, sick, lame, and poor, and it would often be bad news for the rich and the powerful, the insiders and the winners of this current age. Jesus would later famously say, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, which gives us a good transition point into today's um, Peter Principle talk. Because Jesus gave that answer in response to people questioning about this group of disciples, this unseemly group that he he was amassing. And, And that's the response Jesus gave them. So let's jump in. All four of the gospel writers tell us that Jesus, while in the region of Capernaum, which is just up in the north on the, on the western side of the Lake of Galilee, where he had been doing lots of miracle healings, he was growing in fame and drawing big crowds, right? He went to the shores of the Sea of Galilee, which you can go to too. Here's a modern-day picture of the uh, Sea of Galilee. They are still fishing in the Sea of Galilee. About 10 years ago, they had to take a pause, a two-year pause, on fishing in the Sea of Galilee because they, they thought they had maybe extinguished most of the fish. But it is now, as I understand it, again, you know, a, a place where there is lots of commercial fishing done. You don't have to fish there. You can swim in the Sea of Galilee. So I don't know if that's the beach on the western shore, but that there are people that are swimming in in the sea of galilee. Now, if you've heard this story before, right? This is where Jesus goes and calls his first disciples. And if you've heard the story before about what took place on the sea of galilee, it goes something like this. This is the story you're familiar with. As Jesus walked beside the sea of galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now, again, I I think the scriptures always call us to engage our brain in the stories. Can we just be honest? That is a really weird story, right? Like that story... This guy just kind of comes walking down the beach. He says one sentence to some fishermen. They drop everything. In fact, right, uh, James and John, they drop their dad in the family business. They just pick it up and go. They don't ask any questions. They don't make any plans. They don't worry about their poor dad, Zeb, right? They just leave, almost like Jesus cast some kind of spell, you know, over them, and, you know, he's, it's the zombie apocalypse walking down the beach in, in Galilee. Fortunately, though, yeah. we have Luke. Luke is, uh, of the four gospel writers, he's the most detailed by far in terms of providing a lot of backstory for us. Luke was a first-century Greek physician, turned first-rate historian. He was not a disciple of Jesus. He, uh, he set out to write an orderly account of Jesus, and he fills this in on the backstory which when you understand the backstory, why it was, Jesus said one word and they just started going, that's actually not what happened, they just didn't give a lot of details. Luke does. And when you couple Luke's details with some of the historical and cultural knowledge of the day, it brings the story to life like crazy, and it makes the message of what happened that day, as Jesus, new king, new kingdom, right, it makes the message of what happened that day relate to us, and I think challenge us. So here's Luke's recounting of what happened that day after all of his research. He says, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is one of several different names for the Sea of Galilee in the Scripture. There are are at least three or four, maybe five different, different names. It's just, it's a large freshwater lake. The people were crowding around him and they were listening to the word of God, right? Jesus is drawing big crowds here in this region of Capernaum. And he saw at the water's edge two boats. They were left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. Now, the reason they're washing their nets is twofold. The first is it's morning, and you fish with nets in the evening because when the sun goes down, the surface of the water gets cooler and the fish tend to come up to the shallower parts of the lake. The other reason that they're washing their nets, and you'll see this in a minute, is there were no fish to empty out of their nets. They had been out there all night and caught nothing. Luke says that Jesus shows up and he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put a little, to put, put out a little from shore. And then he sat down. If you remember last week, this is what, what uh, teachers, rabbis would do in the temple. Jesus last week went into his local synagogue and sat down. He sat down and he taught the people from the boat. Jesus creates, because of the crowds, kind of an amphitheater, if you will. In this case, it's like an aqua theater, I guess, to, accommodate all of these people that had gathered to hear what he was going to say. Now, it's seemingly random chance that Jesus picks the boat of Simon, who will later, Jesus will change his name to Peter, and excuse me, because I'm going to go back and forth between Peter and Simon, same person. And when Simon uh, had um, done so, right, and set out, and Jesus does his teaching, when he had finished speaking, Jesus said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Now, again, enter the story. Have you ever been, like, really tired? You ever worked the night shift and been just really tired? Have you ever been hangry? Have you ever been, like, just, like, cooked tired and really hangry? And then add some frustration to it, right? If, If you know what that feeling is like, then you know what this man Simon has to be feeling right now. Because he's all of these things. And then this rabbi from town shows up. Interrupts his morning cleaning duties. He would, one would imagine, was Peter was just getting ready to go home. He had a wife and have some breakfast. Take a nap. And now this rabbi shows up. The rabbi shows up and wants to give Peter fishing advice. This is like, me showing up at my mechanic's garage on just some day and watching him have a hard time with a catalytic converter and offering Mike's friendly my opinion. He would laugh me out of the room, right? Like, dude, you bring your cars to me. Plus, Jesus's opinion, like mine would be about a catalytic converter, makes no sense it's morning, the sun is up, the fish are at the bottom of the lake to stay cool for the day out of the sun. If they caught nothing all night, they're not going to catch anything now. And they're hungry, they're tired. They had just finished cleaning the nets. Note, side note. Note. If as followers of Jesus, if Jesus never shows up at your life at inconvenient times and requests that you do something seemingly that makes absolutely no sense, right, that isn't something you are in the mood to do, you might have missed Jesus. Now, check out Simon's response. Interesting. This is almost a ridiculous request. Master, we have worked hard all night. We haven't caught anything. But because you say so... I will let down the nets. There is an entire sermon worth of material here. I, I'm not going to preach it today, but if I did, it would be called Because You Say So, and it would have two points, right? The first is that while it made no sense by any worldly wisdom to put the nets down again, while it was terribly inconvenient, while it was potentially embarrassing for Simon, this is a man who makes his living fishing. He'd already not caught any fish all night, right? Now he's going to go out and he's going fi- to, you know, he had fished in private and got nothing. Now Jesus is going to make a public spectacle of him. He's assuming he's going to catch nothing. And so he's going, why is he doing this to me, right? It's going to cost him a day of work, some public embarrassment. Point one of that sermon would be because Jesus said so. He did it anyway. Point two would be this. If you have heard this story of, of Jesus and, and Simon, or Jesus and Peter. If you've heard of the name of Peter, Jesus a disciple. Could you raise your hand? Just raise your hand for one second. If you've heard of Peter. I think every hand went up. I can't see much in these lights, but. If you've heard the name of Peter, every hand went up. You all know the story of Peter's life, of his wins and losses. He winds up being the guy on whom Jesus builds his church. And, and do you know why all of this happened? Put it this way. Here's another way. The only reason you might be in the room this morning is because, I mean, Peter could have died, just a a lonely old man in his bed one day, if he had just said, oh, Jesus, I'm too tired. That doesn't make any sense. There's too much. I mean, I'm going to lose work. I'm going to look silly. I'm not going to do it. I mean, point two would be, do you know what hangs in the balance for your family and your life and your legacy and our church and our faith and our town and the 96,000 people that don't know Christ within one town of our town? Every time Jesus asks you to do something inconvenient or potentially costly, you can make an argument that we're in the room today, 2,000 years later, because Peter decided to say, because you say so. Side note, don't miss out on the potential of a because you said so life that Jesus has for you. Don't. Don't miss that. All right, back to the story. Because you said so, I will let down the the nets. When they had done so, when they had done so, remember what John the Baptist's message was, right? If you want to be ready for the new kingdom and the new king, you don't just repent. You don't just change the way you think. You don't just believe. You, you, You don't believe so. You live so. You do so, right? Remember everybody asked John the Baptist, what should we now do? When they acted in accordance with their belief in Jesus, even when it made no sense, what happens? They caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled the boat so full they began to sink. Now, I know you know, many of you know this story. But you've got, you've got to get back to being on those shores I just showed you. What the scriptures are telling you is this is an immeasurable amount of fish. This is a ridiculous amount of fish. It was something that was very clearly supernatural. No one had ever seen anything like this before. It was literally, in front of their eyes, a miracle. No one had ever seen anything like it. Simon steps out in faith. Jesus, right, just proved to him, to everyone there, that not only can he do miracles, but Jesus seems to be in charge of outcomes. Jesus seems to control nature itself. And if you were there, I would imagine there was a lot of initial excitement, right? People kind of laughing and and cheering. It it had to have gone on for a bit, like other boats had to come out. And finally, they get all of the, the, the fish in the boat and the boats back to shore. And now you know the excitement is wearing off, and Jesus is still standing there. And for you and I, if we believe that Jesus is who He said He is, if you believe this story about Jesus, for you and I and for Peter at that moment, there are two potential responses to something like this happening what's he going to do what's he going to say right? The first response is is what I think is common to you and I in our Western Christianity—at least it's common to me—the first thing that Simon could have done when he got back to the Thor, the, the Thor, when he got back to the shore was think to himself, "My ship has come in. Like literally, my ship has literally just come in." He's thinking, "I just got lucky. Somehow, Jesus got in my boat, and now that Jesus is in my boat with me, right? I mean." Think about what the future is gonna be like with Jesus as the co-pilot of my fishing boat. Simon could have assumed based on what he just saw, right? Now that he has Jesus on his side, Jesus is going to help him advance his cause. And what's his cause? It's fishing, right? That Jesus exists, this is great. I have found Jesus. And now the blessings are going to flow in. My purposes and my dreams, they're all coming true. He, had, he could have easily thought, I know you and I are often taught, that Jesus' purpose is to make him rich or blessed. The best fisherman the shores of the Galilee has ever seen. I mean, come on. If it's you, wouldn't there have been something that runs through your mind that goes, this is going to get me the bigger boat. He could buy the marina. Maybe set up a franchise down on the Dead Sea, right? Call it Peter's perch and pickerel. Set up a swag shop with T-shirts at the marina. Heck, if the fish fish kept coming like this, he could hire guys to do this. He wouldn't need to go out. he sleep in at the new lake house. Update his Tinder profile with the boat and the the house pictures. It's only a matter of time now, right? Until, Until all of the other competition on the lake gives way and he rules the whole lake. In fact, right, with all of this, I mean, there was lots of people that saw this, and Peter's kind of in the spotlight right now. He's got all this newfound publicity and fame. Maybe he he should strike while the iron's hot. Publish a book. I'll call it the Peter Principle. Trademark the name first. Get out ahead of it. How to be blessed by God by following three simple fishing tips. And if you do them right, God will fill your nets. Best Christian seller. What Peter could have been tempted to do is what at least I'm tempted to do. In fact, I would tell you it was what Jesus was tempted to do out in the wilderness, if you remember, to use God to advance our kingdom within the kingdoms of this world. To choose our kingdoms, the kingdoms of this world, where might makes right, where the rich get richer, where we use our power and our leverage and our advantage and our influence to gain as much as we can, to pile up and hoard whatever we can, where, where we gather and, and pass down, where it, where it's me first and my needs and my kids and my family and my pleasure and you, well I mean if there's some, if there's some crumbs left over, then I might have something for you. But isn't this often how we relate to God? I'm here, Lord. I believe. I'm trying. I'm good. I've used all the principles. And now, in some sense, you owe me. Bless me. I'd argue this is what sits at, at the heart of westernized Christianity often. This, however, is not what sits at the heart of 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 Peter's faith that he inherited in this first century Jewish faith. So Peter's response is really one quite familiar to those uh, of his time, and I think also familiar to us if or when we were ever to be confronted personally, if you've ever been personally confronted by the overwhelming power and presence of God in our very midst, Peter suddenly realizes who's standing in front of him. And so Luke writes that when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me. Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. He fell on his knees and he said, this is interesting, right? Not... Not come to me, not get in my boat again, Jesus. Let's do it again. He said, go go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Suddenly, the t-shirt shop and the lake house, they don't make any sense in light of who he realizes is standing in front of him. My guess is that Peter had heard about the healings in Capernaum, the town in which he lived, or, or his home bordered anyway, and people were beginning in town to wonder aloud if this rabbi from Nazareth, could he be the long-prophesied, long-awaited Messiah? Peter, like everybody else, wasn't sure. And I mean, like you and I, I mean, he wasn't sure, and he had a, he had business to tend to. He had a sick mother-in-law at home, we'll see that. There was... This was something for the religious types to worry about, maybe, to wonder about. It was something that maybe he would have to deal with another day, but then suddenly he shows up in Peter's life, in Peter's boat that day, and he rocks the boat. And When Peter comes to the realization that Jesus is who he said he is back there at the temple in Nazareth, that he was the fulfillment of all of the messianic prophecies that they had all studied, that he is the one who, quote, brings freedom for the prisoners and sight for the blind, that he is good news to the poor, Peter does not react by going, this is awesome, look, you're the one I've been waiting for. I've been a really good person, and so now it's time for you to give me what you owe me. Peter instead comes the way Jesus talked about last week. Peter comes poor. Peter comes all of a sudden realizing, I have nothing to offer you. Peter comes as a sinner. He acknowledges it. But here was his one mistake. He did not realize that this Jesus was going to turn both the Roman Empire and the religious world upside down. He assumes that, that everything is going to continue to be the way everything always has been and, and that everything would o- always would be. And since God has always seemingly, at least this is what he, he had been taught, that God wanted nothing to do with sinners that God deals with priests and priests only, and priests deal with God, and even the priests, I mean, heck, the priests in town want nothing to do with sinners. They wouldn't go near them. they cross on the other side of the road. That's why there's a place in the temple, the holy of holies, Peter might have said. God stays there. The high priest only goes in there once a year, and heck, even when he goes in once a year, we have to tie a rope to his leg in case, in case he's not good enough, in case he did something wrong, and then we drag him out. Peter says what every good Jew of his day would have said. Peter says what maybe you and I have said. Go away from me, Lord. I'm I'm not good. I'm a sinful man. Lord, I mean, maybe this is is where you've been with God. Lord, you don't want anything to do with me. My past, my thoughts, my darkness, my, my addiction... The thing I keep saying I'm going to stop that I never stop, that my history, my shame. You don't want any part of this. Peter thought maybe like you and I do. I know, I know. I sometimes do that. That my sin and my screw-ups and. My shame, it disqualifies me, in a sense, from being close to Jesus. When what Jesus was trying to show Peter and the world was that in this new kingdom, this new, for this new king, sin is not disqualifying for you. It was a prerequisite for you. That this is why he was here, for people just like Peter Go away from me, Lord. If you, if you know the scriptures, it's essentially what we know from the Genesis story, the same thing Adam was, in a sense, saying. As soon as Adam sins, he goes and hides in the bushes. Go away from me, Lord. Jesus was here, as the Bible calls him, this second Adam, to bring Peter and you and I out of our hiding places, to remove from us our shame. There's one more line in the story. I think it's the best, most powerful line if you understand what's going on, the story behind the line. These are life-changing words that Peter is, or Jesus is about to utter to these four sinful men that seem scared to death, afraid, and unworthy of Jesus. They lived, remember, in a first-century Jewish world where Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, what, what they would refer to as the books of the law, where the Torah dominated the culture. It dominated their values, their understandings, their worldview, their cultural history. And thus, as you would imagine, it dominated their educational system. Every child in Israel was, was offered, was welcomed, was put into training in the torah from the time they're four or five years old they were brought into the local synagogues in their towns in their hometowns interesting side note jesus went to his hometown last week if you were here in nazareth into his local synagogue this is likely the synagogue we're led by a local rabbi where Jesus was educated in the Torah. Jesus would go back some years later, 20 years later, 25 years later, and he would walk in, he would go, all of those laws, all of those prophecies you taught me about while I was here 20 years ago, I'm the fulfillment of them. Can you imagine that? That's the story behind last week. But this was the story for, for every little boy in, in Jerusalem, right? Most kids in Israel around the age of five or six, just like our kids, they would go off to school at their local synagogue. It was taught by their local rabbi. The first system of education was something in Hebrew called Bates Affair. It would last until the child was about 10 years old. Now, this is hard for us to believe, but in those five years, most kids would memorize the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They would know them by heart. Genesis, Exodus. You ever start the one-year Bible reading plan and get to Leviticus, right? And that's the end of the one-year Bible reading plan, usually sometime in March. By heart, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, at around the age of 10, most kids at that point were done with their formal education. And so they would spend the rest of their childhood and the rest of their lives, really, apprenticing for some craft or some trade. Usually, as we see in this story, like James and John were that morning, they were learning the family business. We don't know how old these disciples are. We'll see that Peter is a little bit older than these guys. Peter is already married at this point. These guys are likely 15, 18 years old. And they're out learning the family business. They're learning to fish with their dad. Their dad's still there in the boat teaching them. But the best and the brightest of the kids, the best and the brightest, the travel team of of school, they were picked by the rabbi, their local rabbi, to continue on in their education. They were given more opportunities. The next level was called Beit Talmud, where for the next four or five years, up until the age of 14 or 15, they would memorize the entire Hebrew Bible, the the entire Old Testament. Genesis... To Malachi. During this time they also learned what was called the Jewish art of questions and answers. This is actually fascinating. Instead of being taught to answer a question with an answer, they were taught as children to begin because this would show that they really understood the scriptures. They were taught to always be curious about the scriptures so whenever they were asked a question they would answer with another question. Do you remember when Jesus was 12 years old, he was at the temple? Here's what Luke writes about what was going on at the temple. Um, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Everyone heard him, was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Jesus was in the midst of Beit Talmud. In the coming weeks, we're going to see, and you know this if you read the scriptures, almost every time Jesus is ans- asked a question, does he answer it? He almost always answers with another question. This is part of his training as a young man. All right, now, imagine trying to memorize the entire Old Testament. My daughter um, is going to school. She wants, she wants to go into medicine. And so um, in, in the school she's in, their goal in the freshman year is to wash everybody out of the pre-med program because they only want the kids that can then get into medical school to get through, because they really, you know, they, want, they have to publish their med school acceptance rate, right? And so the goal is to get you out. Now, there's a little bit of that same thing going on here. There are massive washouts, one would imagine, in trying to memorize, not just memorize, but then be able to go back and forth in a question-and-answer style to memorize the entire Old Testament. If you made it, you were like the top 1% of the 1%. You were the best. You were given the potential then of achieving what was the highest of honors. You would enter what was called now the third stage, reserved for very few, the best of the best of the best, Beit Talmud, translated as house of learning. You were given the opportunity now to go and apply, just like most of our kids do coming out of the best schools. They were, they, were, they were given the opportunity to go to a rabbi of their choosing and seek further education. You would apply to be that rabbi's disciple. Now, to, to be a disciple of a rabbi, it had conditions that you and I don't understand. But given that most of us would like to be considered disciples of Jesus, we probably should understand what those conditions are. When you went to a rabbi... You went to apply to be his disciple. Your wish was not just to know what he knows. In fact, you knew a lot of what he knew. It now moved past knowledge. Now it was to become like the rabbi himself. It wasn't just about knowing what the rabbi knows, but doing what the rabbi does and then becoming who the rabbi is. Of course, this was hard. When I was ordained by the CMA, I, I, it was a written test, and then I, you had to sit in an uh, ordination council, and it was, I don't know, a bunch of guys across the desk from me, and for a half a, a, half a day, they just sit there and drill you with questions. Right? They want to know your knowledge, and they want to understand how you apply the knowledge. This was very similar. The rabbi would grill all of those that applied with all kinds of questions, because he's trying to find out if they are qualified, if they are good enough to be his students. He wanted to know if you knew enough, but more importantly, he wanted to see if you could be like him in all areas of your life. And here's why. Because the rabbis had something at stake. Every rabbi had something that was called the rabbi's yoke. It was a way not just of understanding the scriptures, but of applying the scriptures in the real world. It was The way that you you live in light of the scriptures and each rabbi right lived differently they had their own yoke and each rabbi wanted the best of the best of the best to be his disciple so that his yoke why he wanted his yoke to extend it was his legacy he wanted his yoke his way of living out the scriptures to prevail it was that important to them it was that personal now, if he decided after all of this, and I mean, you gotta think these are the, these are the best and the brightest. If he decided all, after all of this that you couldn't do it, then he would tell you to go back to your family business and apprentice along with everyone else. That was what was told to the majority of the kids. But every once in a while, every once in a while, a rabbi would say to some wannabe disciple, one who he really, he really believed in because his yoke was at stake, One who he really thought he could do it. One who really, he really thought, I think he can become like me. Every once in a while, he would greet him, he would, he would end the process with three words. Come, follow me. Now back to our story. Why are Simon and Andrew and James and John fishing that morning? James and John with their fathers. Because they're not the best of the best. They didn't make the cut. That's what's behind Simon's response to Rabbi Jesus. Go away from me. You don't know who I am. And it's what's behind the simple story as translated by Matthew and Mark. Because now you get a sense for what's happening. Here comes this now pretty famous rabbi down the shore to these four fishermen. And he walks up to them and he says the words that they had always hoped someone might say to them their whole lives. Some rabbi would say, come and follow me. Now, there was more to it than that. We have the whole fish story Jesus had just shown. I mean, now you're a rabbi of a whole different class. Jesus had just shown that he controls nature. A rabbi, the biggest one in town, comes up to Simon and the others, and he says, Simon, I believe in you. I believe you have what it takes to be like me. I believe that you can extend my yoke. This is what was going on that morning on the shores of the Galilee. This is not, you know, my friends, some glassy-eyed, trans inducing stare, right, where Jesus kind of, you know. This is why when Jesus says, after he's just shown them who he is, I'm asking you, I'm choosing you to come and follow me. Why they drop their nets and go. Of course they go. Luke records it this way. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid, something he would say over and over again. From now on, you'll fish for people. You will do what I do. So they pulled their boats up on shore and left everything and followed him. Peter, I think you can be like me. Come on. In fact, one more super interesting thing, almost exclusively as I understand it, you applied to be the disciple of a rabbi. The rabbi doesn't come looking for anyone. You go to the rabbi. I mean, what rabbi worth his salt is walking around on the beach looking for people? But not this day on the banks of the Galilee. Jesus comes looking for them. He would later famously say, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Don't you see what's going on here, guys? This is a different kind of king. It is a different kind of kingdom. It is a different kind of disciple. This is the movement of Jesus. It is open to everybody. It is open to the best and the brightest. And as we'll see, scribes followed. Some of the most educated men in Jerusalem followed. The smart and the educated are welcome to come along. But so are the failures and the marginalized. Later in the book of Acts, this is even highlighted. People, when they, well, this is the quote from from Acts. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Don't you see, the kingdom of God is open for everybody, but somehow week after week, you'll see this. It seems like the anybodies are the ones that want to come. Final observation, we have not gotten there yet, but there's a famous story that you, you all know is coming about Peter. If I were to ask you this morning, tell me one story about Peter, this is probably the one you would tell me. One day, Peter and the boys, these newfound disciples of Rabbi Jesus, are out in the boat, and they see, they see in the midst of the storm, while they are once again afraid, they see Jesus walking towards them on the water. And you know the story, right? Do you remember what, what Simon Peter yells out to Jesus. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Now, of all the things that Peter could have said, right, that's a crazy thing to say. But now you understand the background of it. That's his rabbi. And what's Peter's role? Peter's role... If you're, a good, if you're a good disciple, is to do what it is that your rabbi does. You walk the way your rabbi walks. There's stories, as I understand it, that if the rabbi limped, the disciples limped, even if there was nothing wrong with their, their leg. You walk the way your rabbi walks. And so Peter goes, that's my rabbi. I'm called to do what he do- does, to go where he goes, to be where, my, where he is, to walk just like him. That's why that strange quote, if it's you... Call me out, call me out. And you know the story, Jesus calls him and he gets out of the boat and he starts walking on the water. He starts doing what his rabbi is doing. But something happens. The scripture's right. When he saw the wind, he became afraid and he began to sink. Matthew, Matthew then, then sums it up this way. He says, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, why did you doubt? One of the most brilliant observations I've ever heard about this story, every time we've heard this, especially growing up, every time we've heard this, we always assume that it was Peter that lost faith in Jesus. But Jesus is still walking on the water. Why would he have lost faith in Jesus? He's walking fine. He's not sinking. In fact, he cries out to Jesus. Jesus. Who was it that Peter doubted? Doubted himself. That he's a disciple. That he could do what his rabbi did. He fell for the root of the temptations that Satan was trying to get Jesus to fall for in the wilderness. If you are the son of God, if you are a disciple, then you could walk on water. Can't you hear the voice in Peter's head? I don't think I can do this. As I've heard it said, our whole lives, especially if you're in the church for a long time, you hear how necessary it is to have faith in Jesus. And that is 100% true. It is by faith that we are saved, not by works, lest no man should boast. But has anybody emphasized ever to you in your life how much faith Jesus has in you? He thinks, if he's called you as his disciple, he thinks you can be like him. He not only thinks it, he knows it. He leaves his yoke in your hands. Last words of Jesus, and now you go and make disciples. This is true of every one of you. Diana, Jesus thinks you can do it. Sebastian, Jesus believes you have what it takes to extend his yoke. That's why he chose you. I wouldn't have chosen you if, if I didn't think you could be like me. I think Jesus would say that to every believer in the room. And again, not by your best efforts, Not by grinding it out, but by the spirit which Jesus would place in each who would believe. Jesus chose you. And if you have put your faith and trusted your life to him, you did not choose him. He chose you because he believes you have what it takes to be like him, to extend his yoke you can become you can become through his work in you not on your own effort he thinks you can be like him that you can be his presence in a dark and broken world and so the question is I mean if it's clear that Jesus is calling you and has faith in you the question is have you lost have you lost faith in yourself have you lost faith that the Christ in you, the presence of Jesus in you could be extended in your workplace to that boss that drives you crazy. Have you lost faith? Do you believe that you can't heal what's going on in your home? And in your marriage? Ah, it's over. Have you lost faith in your ability to forgive? You're just gonna keep the walls up. You can be like me. That is the story. This is the wondrous story of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus called those who weren't good enough, He called those who had a past, He called those who had not always been faithful. Maybe even you this morning, you're just so caught up in sin and you just fail over time and time again. You're like, there's no way, there's no way. This is not the story of the gospel. That is the story of, a, a, of an old way, an old religious order that Jesus came to fulfill and put an end to. Maybe you didn't grow up in church. You never heard this message before. And Jesus says to you this morning, come. Maybe you've, been, maybe you've been in a place where the Christian community itself has said you're not welcome here. Maybe you're like Peter where you're like, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinner. The story of this morning is he won't go away from you. He believes in you. He has faith in you. He loves you. He chose you. Friends, that is the Peter Principle. We don't rise to the level of our ineptitude. Jesus believes we can rise to the level of our rabbi. Believe in Jesus, but don't forget, he believes in you. Let's stand and close this off.